Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the show, Joel Block. Hey, Victor. Thank you very much. Joel, great to have you here. You've been in the hedge fund space. You've been in the syndication space for a number of years. And we're at an inflection point in the marketplace. There's so many indicators, so many signs that the market is starting to turn. But before we dive into that, why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? I started in the CPA business on the last account at Price Waterhouse when I worked there in the middle of the 80s was to do the tax work for a giant real estate syndicator. And beside being terrible at it, I really didn't enjoy it. And I really wanted to be a deal maker like the guys we were doing tax work for. So I left the firm and met another guy. The two of us tied up a little building, raised some money, and I've done dozens and dozens of deals since. And then I took some time with the venture capital business. And so I've done a number of different things. I've, I built a company, which I sold to a Fortune 500. I've just been around the block doing different kinds of deals. I love it. I love it. So we're at an inflection point in the market. There's a lot of indicators, especially depending on the sector we're talking about. The distress is starting to work its way through the system. It's been artificially held down by all the various moratoria on evictions, moratoria on foreclosures, and so on. What's your perspective? Where are we in the cycle? And are we about to catch a falling knife? Listen, I don't think that we've been saved by these eviction moratoria. I think that's what's causing part of the problem is that the government, at least in the United States, the federal government has done, in my estimation, quite a poor job of taking care of the citizens through this economic problem. And rather than all of the burden being absorbed by the deep pocket, which is the federal government, they've really moved the problem onto the shoulders of, in a lot of cases, retirees and small people who own small apartment buildings, small commercial centers, and they're giving people the ability not to pay rent when maybe they have an alternative income source like unemployment, but the retiree or the family who's worked hard to save money to buy a building is damaged by that. And so the government hasn't done a good job. But I think that the problem is going to become much more severe as we go longer, especially as it becomes even more complex now with more cases, more shutdowns, et cetera. People just can't hang on a lot longer. We're starting to see that as well. When, and if I think back to the springtime, I sat in conference calls with various hotel owners and they talked about how much reserve they had in their war chest. They could survive until September, October. Many of them have bonds. There are no forbearance terms with those bonds. And we're now past that. So I'm expecting to see very high default rates for that asset class. It's interesting. I attended a conference yesterday with Dr. Doug Duncan. He's the chief economist for Fannie Mae. He shared a very interesting statistic. He said that when the forbearance terms became available with the CARES Act, he said about a quarter of the people who signed forbearance agreements with their lender did so on a preemptive basis, not because they needed to, but they did it out of an abundance of caution in case things turned bad for them. So almost a quarter of the people who did that did it purely on a precautionary basis. Another quarter did so even though they had experienced some loss of income, but they didn't actually need it in order to meet their mortgage payments. So they're still current on their mortgage payments, even though they didn't need it. So almost half of the forbearance agreements out there are there just in case. And as they become due, as those loans need to be made whole again, the sense is that the funds will be there to actually make that happen, at least for about half of them. 
these are crazy times and people don't know what tomorrow is going to be. I can absolutely relate to why people would sign these agreements or make application for some kind of special treatment just in case the need arises. Now, just because you're awarded the right to take a forbearance doesn't mean you have to take it. And, and taking it is not really a good idea if you don't need it because then you end up in a situation where you owe a bunch of money later on and just the problem will eventually come back to you and you have to be aware that that's the case. So I certainly can understand that. The government and the companies that were involved in collecting whatever it was gave us some space, some breathing room just in case. But after about May, everybody kind of started acting like the problem is solved. There's no problem anymore. Everything is great. Some of the unemployment relief ran out for tenants and some of the other forbearance types of things started to go away. The, the government stopped taking care of the citizens. And long and short is that the amount of relief really went away. So now uh, people are in a situation where there's been very little relief. In a lot of cases, the cities or the states said that the tenants don't have to pay, whether for commercial or for uh, residential purposes. And now people are just at the place where they just can't hold on anymore. Some people can hold on for three months, six months. It's very few people who can hold on for 12, 18, and very few companies, by the way, too. And there's going to be this giant ownership shuffle which is what people that have cash organized in advance are going to be prepared to take advantage of. I think that's absolutely right. So as you look forward into Q1 and into Q2 next year, if you were sitting on dry powder, what would you be having your eyes on? I'll tell you what I would not be looking at. I would not be looking at downtown urban commercial property. And, and let's talk about why first, and then that'll lead into what I would be looking at. As I look at uh, this work from home phenomenon, here's what I see. Number one, people are starting to like this work from home thing. It's working for them. Now, I don't think people are going to want to work from home every single day of the week, but they might call their boss and say, look, when we get to go back to work in six months or whatever it is, I'd like to come back uh, two or three days a week. And if the company says, you know what, we'll have an A team and a B team and you'll each come back two or three days a week, companies are only going to need half as much space. So there's going to need to be an enormous conversion of space. But the implication of that is huge. Half as many cars on the road going downtown, half as many cars parking uh, in parking lots, half as many people eating in restaurants. So the amount of contraction in cities is going to be dramatic. But the dollars are not going to stop being spent. The dollars will just be migrated into suburban communities where people live. They're still going to want to go out to eat. They're still going to want to buy the things, drive around, do whatever they do. It just isn't going to be in downtown areas. So we can expect reductions in traffic, reductions in, in parking and other things, which, by the way, significantly reduces taxes paid to governments. The governments have to worry about that. But I would not be buying in downtown areas where these work from home phenomena are really going to come home and, and take action. But I would be thinking about properties in suburban areas because suburban areas are going to be much busier as a result of this reorganization. Fascinating. When I look at high-rise buildings in the downtown core, I think about my home city of Ottawa, Canada, residents in those buildings fall into two categories. They're the young professionals, maybe a single person, maybe someone newly divorced, or it's an empty nester, and there's nothing in between because those are still very walkable communities. You can walk to the grocery, you can walk to the restaurants, you can walk to the coffee shop, which is much more difficult to do in the suburbs. The four-bedroom house in the suburbs, you have to drive everywhere. It's a different lifestyle. 
So the question is, I definitely understand the people that don't need to live in the downtown core because they're not working the downtown core, but there are those who will choose to still. What do you think? I think that one of the things that's going to happen to a lot of this underutilized commercial space is going to be converted into residential space because there is a movement toward living in downtown areas. And I will tell you, in cities like Los Angeles, some of these large cities, there's a lot of unrest. And that unrest tends to be displayed in downtown areas. So I find downtowns to be much more dangerous. And I think that's scaring people away. That's another trend in residential, by the way, is that people are moving away from some of these much more densely populated, close to the city areas to further urban areas. So it's going to increase urban sprawl because it moves people away from where they perceive to be dangerous or problematic. There are people who like to live downtown. I'm not one of those kind of people, but there are people who like that. There'll be more people. Prices are going to come down. There's going to be some of these buildings are going to be cut in half. Uh, The bottom part will be uh, commercial. The top part will be residential uh, because there are some desirable things about being in downtowns uh, of certain cities. So I think we can expect some changes because we have this infrastructure that's built that we don't really need the same way that we've always needed it before. The pandemic has taught us some new lessons. That's a big part of what I'm seeing. Fascinating. So with the investors that you speak with, what are they asking for? Most of them are still doing uh, residential. People need residential property. In states other than California, which is uh, very liberal and very pro-tenant, people are not describing that they're having a lot of problems with their collections. Uh, They don't seem to be having the same kinds of problems that people have in California. Assets are definitely going on sale. Some of these commercial assets are definitely going to be uh, dropping in price. It may not happen with some of the residential properties, the multifamily properties in some of the more liberal states or communities for a while longer. What are other people saying? What are you hearing from other people about uh, these same topics? We're seeing a number of different segments in the market. Real estate has always been hyper-local. It still is, even more so than it was in the past. If you think about metro areas, we see migration within the metro. For example, you look to, like you said, to the downtown rents in places like Dallas have fallen. Downtown rents in Frisco and Plano have fallen, but rents in Arlington have gone up. Rents in San Francisco proper have fallen. In Oakland, they've gone up. That somewhat supports the migration that we're talking about here. Exactly. It's, it's happening in every major city. First of all, a lot of these major cities are very poorly run. The homeless problem is rampant in many of these cities. And people are looking to get out of these cities anyway because they're not safe. And secondarily, if they don't have to work in downtown, a lot of the incentive to be in those communities goes away. And I will tell you that the cities are going to have to figure this out because this presents a tremendous problem for them in their taxation. Cities like New York, they charge like a 9 or 10% city tax to work in their city. But if the CEO of a big company walks out in front of his skyscraper and looks up and says, I'm an idiot for housing 50 floors of people in this skyscraper, the most expensive real estate practically on the planet, And the person decides, I'm just going to keep four floors of executives here, my best salespeople who need to call on whoever they are in New York and and some other important people. And the other 46 floors, we're going to move to New Jersey. And that's what's going to happen in New York City is that, and that's why prices are going to drop so rapidly. But what ends up happening, it's not only landlords that are going to suffer, the city's going to suffer and and the, the taxation base is going to suffer. And it's happening in cities like San Francisco. 
if you work in San Francisco, but you don't live there, if you start to commute from home, where do you work? If your office was in San Francisco, but now you telecommute, where do you work? And cities have not yet figured this out. There are tremendous tax implications for this. So the ramifications for these cities uh, is dramatic because they are running out of money fast. Exactly right. And cities don't have the luxury like the federal government does to print money. They have to balance their books. They cannot print money. And actually, I'll tell you something. I, I, one of the things that I've said, it's a little far-fetched, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing the consolidation of certain city services, city governments, because they don't have a lot of economies of scale. Every city, and, and there are tens of thousands of them, has their own municipal building, their own police force, their own jail, their own this, their own that. And, and it's just terribly inefficient. And, and I wonder if some of these cities would ever consider to consolidate, because to me, it makes a lot of sense. If consolidation has been effective in the world of private enterprise, why shouldn't it work in government as well? <laughs> it works, but you got a lot of ego in government that, that's not dealt with the same way as it is in business. Absolutely. That's a very interesting insight. I think there's potential and it might be forced by the circumstances as opposed to being by choice. Yeah, I think so. And you know, listen, we got five or six states that are on the verge of going broke. I don't know what's going to happen to them, but maybe we don't need 50 states. If we were to start over again, would we make 50 states? I don't think so. I don't know that the Constitution would necessarily allow for those states to merge, but uh, I understand where you're going. I understand where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally agree that it's a stretch and it certainly isn't part of the constitution. But if we were to start over, would we set up 50 identical governments and let everybody do what they want? In fact, one thing that COVID has really taught a lot of us, being an American citizen for my whole life, I never realized how much power government governors have, mayors have, really never realized that we really are a country of 50 different states. That always seemed like it was just nomenclature. It just seemed like it was just talk. But all of a sudden in COVID, every state has their own rules. Imagine what it would be like if every state had their own driving rules. And you couldn't, if you, the minute you drove across state lines, the rules were all different. And you had to go on to the other side. You couldn't turn right. You couldn't do this. You couldn't, we couldn't move around the country. But that's what this COVID thing has demonstrated is that Every governor has the right to do whatever he wants and make whatever rules he wants. And that's very problematic. And that's part of the reason that we can't get control of this problem is we got 50 different governments making 50 different sets of rules. The proverbial herding of cats. That's a big part of our problem. And hopefully we'll get that under control. Fascinating. Joel, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Uh, the best way would be to go to our website, bullseyecap.com. Our company's Bullseye Capital. So bullseyecap.com. Com. And uh, there's a lot of information about us. We're well known as uh, providers of syndication, hedge fund training, and uh, we probably build more syndications and funds in this country than anybody else. Be in touch if you're looking at race capital and I can be of any assistance. Fantastic. Thank you for the insights, Joel. For the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Joel at Bullseye Cap. That's Bullseye as in the target and CAP.com. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.